When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today. You're listening to a Castaway Media Podcast. Find more great shows at castaway.media or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash castawaypodcasts. Hello. What are you doing? I tell you what you're doing. You're listening to Potteroni, sponsored by Jack Cody's craft beer from the lovely town of Thrada. My favorite Jack Cody's is Smiggy. The Amber Ale. I had a couple of them last night. I like the taste. A mix of light and dark malts. Creating an Amber Ale. Giving it a nice nice biscuity malt base. Oh, I love Smiggy. Especially with a barbecue or pork chops or a juicy burger. Nice. But if you have different tastes, you might want Puck Pilsner. That's 4.5%. Duxy Grape. Fruit Tea Pale Ale, 5%, and Lazy Eye IPA, 6.3%. But if you like uh, stout, blackjack, draw the cream stout, 4.6%. Um, yes, well, and Jack Cody sponsored my gig every month in Odd Molly's and Drada the last Thursday and every month. And good news! Good news, next month, on the 25th of August, Fred Cook will be arriving. And better news, because Odd Molly's have joined up now with a club, new comedy club in Wexford, in Mackens, the last Friday of every month, and Fred Cook will be there as well. Well, I'm still finding pieces of Glastonbury on my feet. On my shoes, I should say, not on my feet. I'm not a dirty mucky man like that I do wash and bits of it on my bag it was so muddy in Glastonbury it just sucked sucked at you it didn't want you to leave and it kept clinging onto you as you left and wandered through the mud and then onto the bus and then the other bus and then the airport there were still pieces of Glastonbury dropping from me as I walked through the airport onto the plane and it's still here and it's still in my heart Glastonbury was fantastic. And Craggy Island last week was incredible. We went out there on a boat. Me, I brought my daughter out. and Saturday night in, in Craggy Island on Inish Ear, my son's band played, and I was so proud. And they played some great songs, some brilliant covers. Moon Age Daydream, David Bowie's Where Is My Mind, The Pixies. And um, what was that other one? Steady As She Goes, The Raconteurs. What a great song. And then a couple of their own songs. And I just stood at the back and I was very proud. I was proud. And then I went on and did the songs with my the afters. And we did all that stuff from the 80s, which I thought was connected to Father Ted. And then we did um, the real Father Ted songs, My Lovely Horse, a medley of My Lovely Horse and Crazy Horses by the Osmonds. And the song, Songs of Love, the Neil Hannon song, which is the theme, of course, from Father Ted. And what else did we do? Oh, yeah, Ghost Town. And uh, Ghost Town. And then every now and then I was dancing and sweating and up on stage and there was madness of people dressed as nuns and there was priests, obviously, and then more obscure characters and a woman that had Nutella all over her face and front, which is 
the very obscure character of Father Ted. There was at one point there was a naked man. I didn't even see that. There was so much that people threw up piece, bits of costume and a bouncy beach ball and just craziness going on. And then every now and then I'd look over and wave at my 15 year old daughter who was right at the back and she'd give me a big smile and it melted my heart. It was fantastic. It was just a great mad crazy night and then the next day we took the ferry day trip to Inishman a bunch of ragtaggle people someone had a trumpet a saxophone and a sax that's a fiddle and a double bass and the waves were bouncing us up and down we were all drinking and they were playing the birdie song over and over <laughs> and we ended up in Inishman just this rocky barren place with the odd horse here and there and a sheep and mostly no trees and mostly stone and grass grass that has been well protected by incredible amounts of stone walls and that was it that was the brilliant um trip to Craggy Island do I so I'm going to be going to the Vodafone Comedy Festival on Sunday to perform with Milton Jones and um, what else am I doing next week I, I've got a gig in uh, Tralee in El Forno uh, uh, Tralee um, what do you call it it's uh, the Spanish um, restaurant where you get little bits of food and lots of it Seems to be big and carry because I have one of those in uh, Calorglin as well. And on the Thursday, I'm in the Forge in Causeway in Kerry. A lot of carry going on. Uh, and that's uh, what I'm doing. And then the week after, I think I'm in, I'm in Limavady and I'm in the, the Prince of Wales Hotel in Athlone on the 10th of August. And uh, that's what I'm doing coming up. Right, this episode is uh, an interview with Jimmy Smith. He is um, the best guitarist in Ireland, if not the world. And uh, he came down to Boils of Slain and we had a chat. And it was brilliant. So you're really good. Uh, yeah. You know, let's just you know whatever you're doing you're cycling or you're running on the treadmill or you're driving in your car or you're sitting in your kitchen or you're lying in bed enjoy this Jimmy Smith hello uh, now, I don't know if you know what's going on here. Does anyone know what's going on here? No. no. Do you know what's going on here? Good. Uh, I am Joe. How are you doing? Hello? Hello? Uh, I do a podcast a podcast called Potterini, and I interview people who are very talented, uh, extremely talented. And uh, I do it uh, once a month. I like to do a live one. And so I've invited a guest uh, tonight. To, so we're going to chat. He's going to play a couple of songs. It'll be about 30, 40 minutes. It'll be fantastic crack. <laughs> and uh, are you all? I, I know there's people from Germany here. How are you? From Essen. Guten Tag. That's whatever. Uh, that's the only German I know. Does that make sense? Guten Tag. Good, uh, but it's, it's, uh, should I say good evening instead of... Good, good Nacht. Brilliant. How are you doing? Yeah. So, uh, brilliant. Uh, and I suppose the rest of you are all local, are you? From, no? Drogheda. So you've come a good, good bit. <laughs> you've come fairly, fairly far. Anyway. Uh, we're all European. That's the main thing. Uh, still. And uh, so, anyway, I am Joe. So, uh, there's a couple of dogs there. Good. Brilliant. Uh, so, it's great to be here anyway, because I have two young children at home. It's just great to get away from them. So, that's... That's mainly the reason I'm doing this. Uh, so, Annie is out for that. Do you have kids yourselves? You've one each. Brilliant. That's fantastic. And then you got together and joined, uh, made a family. Okay, that's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. It's modern Ireland. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's good. And uh, young kids, are they little ones? Or the, doesn't matter. I don't want to get too personal. It's, it's probably an affair you're having, actually. I, I don't know. That's why you came all the way from Dorada. <laughs> so, anyway, I I have I, I have two kids, and uh, when we found out we were having a first child, we decided we wouldn't find out if it was going to be a boy or a girl. And it's five now. We're dying to have a look. Good night, <laughs> good man. There's that's what happens when you don't have kids. Anyway, uh, you end up having little little dogs. 
He's back. <laughs> what was that? Two fuck offs at the same time. Jesus Christ. <laughs> That'll sound great on the radio. Anyway, yeah. Okay, so uh, so that's what that's what's going to happen. Uh, I have a brilliant guest. His name is Jimmy Smith. He was in a great band called the Bogey Boys uh, back in the fifties. And uh, <laughs> uh, but he's an amazing guitarist. He's played with uh, all all sorts of people like Van Morrison and uh, Phil Linnet. Am I correct? Say yes. And uh, and you two supported him. Okay, so what do you think about that? Isn't that fucking brilliant? So, so save your applause. Save your applause for a minute. Uh, <laughs> so, what I'm going to say is, uh, I'm going to start off say, "Welcome to Potter Rooney." Blah blah. You all go mental. I'm going to bring on the guests and go feckin' mental. We're going to go mental then, oh, and then we'll chat. Okay. So, so uh, welcome to Potter Rooney. Thank you. We're sponsored by Jack Cody's. I have a, a glass of it here. If anyone wants a bottle of it, I'll give you one uh, or a case to bring home. And uh, I'm going to bring on my brilliant guest. He played with the Bogey Boys. He's played with Van Morrison. We'll talk about his career. It's just an amazing. He's an amazing guitarist. Please give it up for Jimmy Smith. There you go, Jimmy. How are you? Grand. Grand. <laughs> That's very dull there, Andrew. <laughs> Jesus, uh, he's criticising the sound already. Okay, brilliant. Typical musician. Anyway, so, Jimmy, uh, first of all, I have to say, when I, I was growing up in just down the road, uh, and I went to school in Kentstown, and I got into punk music, and, uh, but I, I, you know, we were, I was always looking across the water to music. That's where we didn't think we had great Irish bands or something. And then I was watching television, and I saw this band called The Bogey Boys, and I thought they were brilliant. And then I found out the main man was from Navan. And I thought there was a future for me if I lived that close to a great guitarist, a great singer. So he inspired me when I was a young fella. And uh, so, I mean, what was it like when you started out? You, you came from a music family, a musical family. Correct? Yeah, and uh, that whole thing about... <clears throat> yeah, when you mentioned it to me about the uh, seeing me on the telly and stuff, it was... Uh, I had seen somebody prior to that that gave me the idea that I could get something out of Nav and, and into the very competitive music business at the time. And mm. it was a band called the Mad Visionary Orchestra. I don't know if anybody ever heard of them, but uh, the German guys might have heard of them. No. Okay. okay. Um, but the, they were an amazing band in the 70s. They had Billy Cobham on drums and Jean-Luc Ponty and uh, John McLaughlin was their guitar player. But the bass player was from outside Dublin. And when I found this out, it just didn't compute with me. I, I thought the music was from another planet. And that gave me... I, I, here before, I'd been playing in show bands and stuff. Actually, the man is here who is responsible for me getting my first job with a show band, which didn't allow you to express yourself very well, but mm-hmm. it was a great training ground. And uh, when I was coming... Now, the, the music I was doing with the bogey was nothing like my vision. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea that you could actually transcend the kind of collective low self-esteem we had in the 70s as a post-colonial subjugated people. I don't want to get into that too much. Uh, no, but actually, you know, that's an interesting point because I remember you, you would uh, kind of, when people started singing, they sang, they never sang in an Irish accent or... Well, that's an it, interesting you know, thing. It was always yeah. a mid-Atlantic type of twang, but I, mm. you know, I support that because mm. I was having this discussion the other night with, with Mary Coughlin of all people and... Uh, uh, the idea that she sings in a Galway accent, pretty much, mm. uh, and she's authentic. But an awful lot of people—I uh, won't mention names—but they, at some point in their career, decide they're going to be authentic and they sing modern rock, pop, whatever you want to call it, which is essentially American-influenced music, mm. and they sing it in a Dublin accent, and it just sounds to me like it's—it's it's so contrived, and uh, I hate it. You know? Really, yeah, but. If you look at the way Bowie sang in his London accent. Ah, it was Anthony Newley. It was, it was mm. entirely West End Anthony Newley was what he did. Because mm. he started out trying to emulate him. So that deep, uh, over-accentuated vibrato and stuff. Mm. Iggy Pop did the same thing, except that he was from Michigan. So, and Bowie robbed, robbed his music, his singing style. So uh, yeah, there's arguments for and against. But I think if you're going to ring, sing American-influenced music like blues and rock, 
Yeah, I think you should. It's a bit like, say you're from Compton and you come over and play the Eland Pipes in Doolin. It probably wouldn't happen, but if you do that and you're going to say, I'm going to do it my way, you know, well, that's not authentic. That's not real to the music. It might mm. be interesting, but it doesn't do anything for me. So I have a problem with that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I can understand, yeah. But at the same time, uh, singing, an Irish fella singing in an English accent, that, that could, that when the punk band started in Ireland because they heard bands like, well, say The Cure or whatever. Well, our, they friend, would, our friend Bono, who we were talking about earlier on, yeah. he had the worst English-affected accent, but there was a reason for that, as I said, early on. And then later on he became... The reason is that he doesn't really, he, his, his lineage is English, is it? The reason is that he's the greatest gift that the Empire left Ireland when they, they left us. <laughs> and <laughs> because you know he never fought in any fucking gang <laughs> gangland. Uh, he was never in a street fight in his life. That guy, and I know him quite well. And uh, the revis that revisionism from them, I find very insulting and annoying now. Even though we're actually, I know them quite well, and we're friends, and I argue about it with them because mm. they were they were pretty much uh, the last of the planters here. Now, I'm getting very political here. I don't well, want well, to know. Well, what you're saying is that if you're a working class fella and you're in a band, you have to make money. You have to make a living. If you're a middle class fella in a band, your parents are probably paying for you for a while. Well, that, that was this. I don't want to harp on about them, but yeah, we were talking earlier about Vygotsky and constructivism. And it's only now I realize that retrospectively that the bands that were didn't be, get so successful, like my own band or whatever, we got a lot of. Uh, regional success and over in Europe a little Holland and Germany actually and whatever but we were constructive as it appears we had to be pragmatic about the music we played we'd have to play the room like you have to do tonight I mean mm. no offence to anyone here I'm sure when you go to the you know the bottom line in New York or something you realise you're playing to people who understand comedy all like very very well so you can do your more esoteric comedy right but if you're playing at a wedding or something you have to try and entertain the room uh, you two were never like that, for instance, and all those bands, Echo and the Bunny Men wouldn't have come over and done that, they just did their own thing. Mm. I can't speak for their uh, uh, social circumstances, but I can speak for... So it made a huge difference, and if mm. you're a working band, you had to mm. entertain or, and get paid so you could pay the rent that week. So you, did you started off uh, playing in your father's band, is that right? Initially, out in Kenstown was my first gig in Maguire's. Maguire's? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Mm. 50, 50, uh, not 50, about 10, Bob. Which I didn't get, incidentally. But I, was, I earned it, apparently. But I, mm. I said, I want me 10 bob. He said, you earned 10 bob tonight. And I said, great. He said, you're not getting it. But, <laughs> but, but, you, but you earned it. So. You earned it. <laughs> and what did you play with that band? Jesus, it could have been drums or trumpet or piano. Yeah. I can't remember. Uh, it wasn't guitar at that point. Okay. And then what kind of music were you actually listening to? What was inspiring you? Like? Uh, very early on, it was anything from, from American country to uh, uh, Delta Blues, T-Rex, Whatever was happening at the time, I was very Catholic in my... Uh, as an Catholic in your day? What does that mean? Catholic is from many, it means from many churches, one church. You know what that means. No, what, musically, what does Catholic mean? It means you, you're, you're not going to differentiate between the carpenters and the vibrators and the sex pistols and yes. All oh, right, so you, yeah, because when punk music started, you, a lot of people went, okay, Pink Floyd are rubbish. Yeah. Oh, that's rubbish. So I didn't share that view, although yeah. I had to. I was socially kind of pushed into, into being, okay, I'm, this is the line I'm talking But as, as I said, mm. I mean, at one point I remember seeing Yes and Loftus Road and seeing the Sex Pistols the same week. Mm. That would have been, that was a kind of a, a, a paradox for most people because I didn't buy into the tribalism so much. Mm. And I was still more interested in American blues anyway. Okay, yeah. You know? And uh, your sister, uh, Gloria, uh, were you aware of her music? Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, yeah. again, being from a, I didn't buy into that uh, uh, kind of uh, probably elitist bullshit that mm. that Niall Stokes, who was a good friend at the time, but they kind of they didn't understand that a lot of that music appealed to people outside of Dublin. Their view was very narrow, very myopic. And I used to say to them, well, you know, what she's doing, or what my other sister Patrice is doing, and what I had been doing prior to that was uh, working in an industry that they'd know inkling about mm. that was it has been and it's still going i mean there's still people it's like making a comeback now well actually. it's never gone away so mm. you know if you go to the here 
the provinces up in the north and they have dances in hotels and there's a thousand people at them, you know what I mean? Mm. Dublin ignored that for a long time. And it always bothered me a little bit. Mm. You know I mean? Well, I have to say, uh, when did Gloria have a hit with uh, One Day at a Time? 1977, 90 weeks at number one. Not no. 90 weeks, a year and a half, was it? Well, it was Three, something like that. Something like a year. At two no- years. Two years at number one. It's a record, this, yeah. His sister had uh, a record that was two years at number one in the Irish charts. Applause? No. <laughs> 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 you know? uh, but, uh, you know... I'll be honest with you, that drove me insane. It drove time. me insane a little bit too, on one mm. level. But, again, knowing how difficult it was, as you've just alluded to, to come from Navan or to come from anywhere that wasn't central Dublin or south county Dublin and do anything with RTE and then consequently with BBC mm. was a remarkable thing in the 70s. Now it's easier, but uh, it was just to break through that that kind of fourth estate thing. And she did that. And she was an American, whatever. So I realised how difficult that was. And I, kudos, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't my kind of music, fine. And it did annoy me after, after hearing it about the thousandth time, but like anything mm. did after hearing it a thousand times. Yeah, yeah. There was some of that musical. I like Ray Lynham now, I have to say. I played with Ray for a long time, yeah. and, and uh, he was um, he was probably the most authentic of them, the Irish yeah. guys. But then there's that authentic, because he was from Moat in the <laughs> Midlands, and he's singing essentially in American music, so that was always a problem as well, you know? Right, yeah. But then I was guilty of it too, we all were. And Ray and Philomena Begley, My Elusive Dreams, that is mentioned in the song uh, Pear Brown Eyes. Of course it is, and uh, Shane mm. McGann was very... He was very cognizant of all that. I knew him when he was in the Nipple Erectors. We're not, you we're can, not, we're not, okay. It's a podcast, you can say anything. Cool. Because my friend Eddie McIlduff was playing drums with him and, and the Nips were a punk band. And, mm. uh, and then I remember meeting Shane in London a long time ago and he was, he knew all about the Irish country scene. Mm. He was very, Ray Lynham, whoever glory, he knew she was my sister and all that stuff. And he was totally hip on, with all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. He used to go to the Galtimore in Cricklewood, to the, to the Irish dances. Right, yeah, He'd yeah. get thrown out every night he went. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he'd go and give it a go every weekend, you know. Right. And so, uh, what was your first band of your own then? You... Uh, it was called. Uh, oh God! It was called uh, Step Two. Step Two. Shit name. Sorry. Well, what? Why Step Two? I've no idea. No idea. Okay, right. No idea. And we, is that is that? We could spell it. My brother had <laughs> a band called Cascasay uh, at one point. And they made the posters up to play in Murray's and that. Just to say, what? But, but none of them could spell it. So <laughs> it was four different spellings. So they changed the name to Dave of Deja Vu, which was easier to spell. They still had that kind of French. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of an exotic thing. There was a band called Les Enfants. I remember those guys, a bunch of punks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that my phone? Sorry. No, I don't know. That's a gig. That's a gig coming in. It's your agent saying, what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, that's on phone. Yeah, it was a very pretentious time. Now the lads in Navan were not pretentious. They uh, sent me. I was living in America. I was living in Detroit at the time, and they uh, sent me over a live tape live at Murray's. You probably don't remember Murray's little little gaff in Navan, and mm-hmm. the boys were playing away and drinking pints, and you could hear them counting in the song, and nearly every song was about the mod who was. Who was the dole? Do you remember? If you remember Maud, you were on the dole, obviously. So, <laughs> but he had a great song because Maud caught him doing a gig. Who's Maud? She was the woman that gave out oh, the gave dole. Oh, gave out the dole. The right, dole. right, yeah, yeah. And Maud caught him doing a gig and realised he was making a few bob on the gig, so she cut off his dole. So he wrote a song called "Fuck Off, Maud." <laughs> <laughs> and she was actually in the audience on the night. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm in Detroit listening to this. She sent me over the thing, and you can hear them go, one, one, two, there's a song called Fuck Off Mod. And we're going, one, two, three, four. Ah, lads. None of the boys were all taking drinks and whatever. They were very, uh, they weren't a, a pretentious punk band. They yeah. were just a bunch of punks playing away in the avenue. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's funny that way, because I was on the dole in Dublin. Uh, I used to sign on Tara Street, and you would see uh, Lima Mainly there, Tom Dunn. Leave, me, the- leave me alone. <laughs> He'd probably be not wearing shoes or something. Of course not. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so is that the band that uh, support, you supported Thin Lizzy and Navin, did you? Yeah, well, no, early on, yes. The first band, when, when people like Lizzy and Bees McHoney, and that's when I met Frankie. Who were Bees McHoney? Bees McHoney were later to become Ducks Deluxe, which were later to become the Motors. Right. And I was very aware of all that, and I met, uh, I met uh, Deke O'Brien and all those guys that were the founders of Pub Rock in London, which was a forerunner. Two. And Joe Strummer actually came over with the 101ers at that point. He was very young. And came that's the first time I met him. Yeah. To where? To, to, to Navin, actually. To Navin? Yeah. And uh, I met him later when, when they were recording London Calling, 
we were mixing our first album, so we were hanging out with The Clash for a while with Joe, and he was he was a fantastic um, polymath. He was a very, very well-read guy, mm. even though he was a punk later on. He, he was a latter-day punk. He started off as a, an American music fan, but Woody Guthrie and all that stuff, and uh, American country music, as Elvis Costello was in. He was in a, he was in a country band in L.A., in London, before the attractions. Right, yeah, yeah. He, that's why Alison and all those tunes came around. So right. he was very into American country, all country type of thing. Yeah, and well, his father played in it. Declan McManus, or Ross McManus, he's with Joe Laws. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what, when Thin Lizzy came to a place like uh, at that time, Thin Lizzy weren't, weren't signed or anything, were they? Or oh, were they? Yeah, they, they, they came, yeah. yeah, well, before and after, they would come down and play in Navin. And that's the first time I met Phil, I was like 13, and yeah. I was in first year. And the first ever marijuana joint was I ever got he gave it to me yeah. I suppose that's litigious oh no he's dead it doesn't matter it's so uh, uh, yeah. and I was just a kid I was a kid with a top hat and we were we were opening for them and we're sitting around like you know mamas when they're playing like this super band with a black guy in Navin which was like unheard of yeah. and so afterwards we're in the dressing room and he's passing around and I just felt I'd never smoked one before I didn't smoke at the time, and he passed it to me, so I couldn't not take it because, you know... He was filling it. So uh, I, I took it and got violently sick and all afterwards. But, uh, <laughs> and then I met him years later. He asked me to join the band, and we were hanging out together a lot, and, and I told him, you introduced me to drugs, you fucker. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was very mild at the time. And you were 13? Yeah, way too young. I grew up very young. But you're <laughs> I don't know what that means. But you were 13 hanging out with Phil Lynott. That's, yeah, that's that was pretty cool. Yeah. Incredible. Horse Lips would play and people like that. And Ditch Casty, who I still work with, uh, um, Ditch came, he was living in Germany at the time, in Frankfurt, actually. And they mm. were quite, uh, he'd made a great record with a band called Era. And they mm. came over and played, and we opened for all those guys. So uh, it was a great education to see those characters. You know? And then how, how did the Bogey Boys come about then? That was later. I'd, I spent some time in some, in some show bands, and then mm. I felt a little constricted, so... But the late 78, I uh, wanted to put a band together because uh, I'd written some songs and uh, put them together. And then and we got a, we got two nights in the baggage after much hectoring with mm. uh, Charlie McGettigan at the time. And at the first gig, Rory Gallagher came down and Rory was there and somebody said, Rory Gallagher's in the, in, the, in the crowd. And we were terrified. And he came up to me and he, afterwards and he said, would you like to open for, us, for me in the stadium for five nights? So we were only going about a month, and I said, yeah, fucking sure. So we opened them there, and then later we went over to London and played with them, and we did our second album in the studio, and we toured them in, in Holland and wherever as well. So he was a great champion. He was a fantastic Straight off your... Yeah, we just kind of... It just gigs. happened a little bit, you know. So obviously Rory Gallagher respected you as a guitarist. Yeah, he, yeah, he appeared to... He was a very humble guy, and he was... Uh, a fantastic guy, and he he gave us his his studio in Victoria for a good rate to record our second album. And in fact, he gave me his famous guitar. I played that in a couple of tracks just to say I played it. You know what I mean? Wow. And our arrogance was such that he offered to play in a couple of tracks, but he thought we thought he's a boring old fart. We can't have him on. That's again referring back to that kind of zeitgeist at the time that you weren't allowed like those guys. You know mm. what I mean? I, I've since. You know, I've thrown all that out now. I think it's it's. You turned down Rory Gallagher playing on your. Yeah, because oh he was, God. you know, it was 1979, and he was having a tough time, and uh, mm. they were old school, you know. Mm. But I later realised I was just an arrogant little fucker, and I shouldn't have done that. But uh, you know, yeah, we, yeah, we live and learn. Oh, so what kind of fellow was was Rory? Fantastic, yeah. just a most supportive guy. Fantastic musician, committed. Um, mm. On tour, he would do nothing but. Uh, play guitar and he drank quite a lot he had a problem with his uh, his liver and stuff that's what killed him finally but uh, mm. I have my own theory and why he was uh, I won't exp I won't share it with you but uh, he was a very very committed straight down the line I never saw him with a female friend or anything like that you know he wasn't interested in anything but music just music yeah wow and then what point did you did you, did you play in um, where did all the bands play in Dublin the Sportsman's, Dandelion the Dandelion you played in the Dandelion, the Dandelion Market yeah, yeah she well, nearly got electrocuted in the place it was like it was pretty <laughs> primitive wasn't it at the time yeah, yeah. so we kind of thought we played there a few times with you two and uh, some of the other bands the Atrix do you remember them the Atrix yeah. uh, Treasure on the Wasteland Treasure, yeah. Barrowman was a good friend he, was, he died sadly from heroin but uh, mm. he was a good friend of mine he moved to Denmark and uh, last time I saw him was here in Slane Hmm? when the Rolling Stones played here we all went over we'd been playing the night before they were open for us and we went along to see the Stones the next day alright cool uh, and then he moved to Denmark and he died sadly 
Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I think I met him in a pub uh, when they came back from Denmark and he looked wrecked. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when did you, you do Sportage in the Cork Opera House, is that correct? That's right, and so a few other plays in London as well a lot, so we, uh, we were pretty close. Our managers were friends, and um, we did a lot of shows in the UK, and uh, a good few shows in Ireland. Uh, they weren't well known outside Dublin, mm. and maybe Cork. They were well known, but we were better known in Cork. We could fill out the, the opera house, so we could, they opened for us that, that night. When we, we did a couple of nights on TV, and uh, and they went on the bigger and things, of course. Did they? No. What ever happened to those guys? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so when? Uh, so I, I know you brought out the first single was just a one-off signing. That, that was uh, Friday. Well done. Yeah. Friday night. Uh, Friday night. Yeah. Jesus. And uh, when that. Were you a fan or just well, research all this? Well, I love well, I loved that song, and then I did research. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so when you got signed then to do the first album, did you record that in London? Then was that? In- no, we started with the first mm. band in Windmill that later you two made famous. But there was problems with Windmill, so mm. we did a lot of the tracking there. Leo Lyons was producing. He used to be in a band called Ten Years After. Mm. And we went over to London and we finished it in Wessex and that's where we hooked up with The Clash. Because mm. they were doing London Calling there at the time. So in the same studio? Same studio, yeah. So, so were you like going to see, hanging out with a lot of those punk bands at the time? That, yeah. that was when punk was big in London at the time. It was punk, but London was a very cosmo city. And, uh, mm. So we went out, myself and Donald the bass player, uh, we went out with Joe and a few other characters, Mick Jones. And we went to the London Camden, uh, the music machine one night, and Bon Scott was there from ACDC, and they were giving him a hard time. And we went over and had a... Me and Dose liked him, so we went over and mm. had a drink with him. And he died that night. Are you serious? That's the night he died. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. It was yeah. just that he had a, an awful lot of drink, and he went out and choked on somebody else's vomit. <laughs> no, he choked no, it was his, his own, own vomit. Oh, sorry, sorry. It was his own vomit. Yeah. How would you choke on someone else's vomit? Unless you were really kissing them. Well, okay. Hard. <laughs> Uh, I think he pulled over his car. He didn't want to drive drunk. He pulled over his car. Is that what happened? I don't asleep, know. I left him at some point because I was just mm. five sheets to the wind. So somebody got me out of there mm. and he was still rocking away and then I heard later he died the next morning. Right, yeah. And what other bands would you have been hanging Would you have met the Damned at all? Or any, I met uh, uh, Rats Gabies. He was, n- he was nuts, totally nuts at the time. And yeah, he'd yeah, bump into all those guys, yeah. Mostly mm. we liked the Feel Goods and Wilco and those guys. Right. So we did an album with them in the Hope and Anchor in London, which I remember my sister coming to. And uh, who's also here tonight? And uh, we did a kind of, which was quite successful. It was in the top ten in Japan and stuff. So we were on it, and the Feel Goods, Wilco, uh, the Blues Band, people like that. We wanted to align ourselves with those as opposed. Yeah, well, to that's the, more kind of where you were actually. Yeah, the, the Pirates are there. Another, the pi- they were on it too. They were they were there alive too. Mick Green, the great Mick Green, who died two years ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was. I, a, I met him later with Van Morrison. He was he was playing with Van when I was working with him as well. So Mick Green was a hero of mine. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how did how how successful did it get before you kind of called it a day? Like I mean, you were you toured England, right? Or England, UK? Europe, but we were in America yeah. when we broke up really effectively. Uh, I was uh, Detroit. Was it Detroit? Well, we were in Michigan. We, we mm. ended up in Michigan. And we were waiting for our... We'd stop playing the bunch of gigs we went over to do. Mm. And the agent was holding on to try and get us work payments to, to, to go out and tour with somebody. I can't remember who. A band called The Romantics, actually, from Detroit. Really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, OK. And uh, so we were supposed to do that tour. And then the permits didn't come through, so we stayed there for a little while. And then my brother was drumming the band. And uh, I had met a girl and whatever, and I was hanging out. And then I came home. Our father was dying, and things were weird, so... After my father died, I came home and I went back there and I said, I'm going to just cut, cut back for a while. Mm. I went up to northern Michigan and stayed there for about eight, nine months playing to, uh, to uh, bear hunters. And uh, it was very, very bizarre in a kind of a country bar that was all rednecks and stuff. Because all the Ku Klux Klan live there, you know what I mean? Yeah. They're not in the south, they're up in the north, actually. Really? Yeah. And uh, then I moved from there down to Detroit and, and put a band together there and got signed to a label and... Uh, I was touring all around America for a while with various bands, Bon Jovi and things like that. Did you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did you see the the YouTube clip of uh, John Bon Jovi at a wedding? That's, no. It's fantastic. Is it good? He's at a wedding and the wedding band starts singing... Um, living on a Prayer. Living on a Prayer and the singer starts dragging... You know that... Dragging him up, and he's got that look where he just doesn't want to get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. Okay. I, 
<laughs> it's like when someone tells to me, tell us a joke, tell us a joke, oh, tell us a yeah, joke. Well, that must be terrible, yeah. No. You're going to say play a tune in a minute. So it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, like, so what, like your music, I think, would have suited America, don't you think? That's it where did, it would it have. Did. Like... No, it did. It's just that we were in such, mm. we were already making waves. We'd been offered a few labels and whatever, but the, mm. I, I was exhausted with it. We'd had five years and I had my own problems with, with uh, stuff. So I, uh, were you I, drinking? I, yeah, and I'm, myself and my brother mm. got into a, we got into a bit of a fracas. In, uh, I'm worried about. Uh, a, saying too much stuff, and then the other getting censored. But we can't get censored, right? No, you can't get censored. No. Fucking great. Okay, so I'm yeah, whatever okay. I want. Well, no, we got into a row, and, uh, well, it was, yeah, so I kind of, anyway, I got away. Come on, tell us the truth. <laughs> well, my brother, he broke, <laughs> No, his sister's going, no, no, no. No, no, <laughs> Well, he broke a guy's two nose, a nose and two jaws. and, okay. and uh, uh, two, But yeah. then they later on us, they were calling us homosexuals and whatever. Oh, right? shit, you can't do and, that. Uh, no, you can't be at that. So uh, it was in the Midwest, and mm. so we made an account of ourselves and legged it, and then the police were looking for him for a while. So we had to sort all that, and the statute of limitations is up after seven years, so... It's fine now. It's grand it's grand now, so... I uh, think your man's nose is fine. Ah, so. fuck him, it was grand. It was, only, <laughs> it was only a little head, but I mean, it would have been nothing in heaven, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that means coming back from America? No, I, no. Said, no, I said it was meant coming back from America. We had to hide him for a little while and get him back. We spurred him over the border and got him back in uh, here. And he said that he was gone. But I was, they dropped the charges and I stayed there and mm. moved down to Detroit. And uh, then from there moved to California and... Uh, Spent about nine years there. And then, so what were you doing there? You were just playing, like, session? or Yeah, I was working with a girl called Tony Childs who had a lot of success. Oh, yeah. yeah, so we toured the world a lot. We were in Australia and Japan a lot. We had a number one hit in Australia for 12 weeks, which I'd written with her, which we recorded over here, well, in Peter Gabriel's place, and Peter was on it, and all these interesting... We got everybody... There was lots of money then, so we got Peter Gabriel on it, and Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan, who was a fantastic Kualese, uh Pakistani singer, Mm. And all these legendary drummers. We got our favourite musicians on. Rick Marauder from Steely Dan. And we got all these people. Are you playing. serious? Yeah. So we became mates. We toured America after that. And then uh, that album came out. You toured with Tony Charles. Which uh, Rick played drums with us then. Yeah. yeah. And he played on my favourite record, you know. Yeah. Uh, Asia by Steely Dan. So uh, we did that. And then I kind of started moving home by degrees. I'd had personal issues again. And uh, I started working with Van from that, which kind of... That's after eight, nine years with Tony. So we spent a lot of time in Australia. And that's a song that you played. Did you play the Grammy Awards? Yeah, I got a, we got, I've got a Grammy nomination for the album. Yeah. And I played at the Grammys live twice. So, you know. Fantastic. Hey. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit like the new Spotlight Awards, if anyone remembers them. It's just got more people and more lights and stuff. <laughs> And so, uh, with Van, is it uh, your musical director? Or yeah, I was MD for. Yeah. What does that mean, musical director? With Van? Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he's an archy man, isn't he? I like him. He's okay, but he, yeah, I don't want to say much because I, with Van, you got a you got to sign a non-disclosure agreement. With him. Oh, really? Yeah. So I'm limited in what I can say without it. But mm. and he'd be down to me like on the breaks. But he's actually, I like mm. think he's great crack. Mm. He's daft. He's but what is the job of musical director? Well, what, a musical director essentially, it can, it's a big remit. It's sometimes I've done stuff on TV where you have to write music for everybody. Mm. With Van, you just have to learn and write out his entire canon, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's like a thousand. You have songs. to learn every song. That well, you don't. You don't learn them. You write them out. You write them out, them, and then you write them out for everyone else. So he'll come in and he'd call a song off an album from 1971. And you have to find that and play it straight away. So when you're doing a gig, there's no set list? Essentially, no. And he can just... Yeah, there'll be a set list that's totally disregarded as soon as he walks on stage. You know what I mean? So you've got so to know every song he's... Essentially, yeah. And if you don't know, he doesn't understand why you don't... And he's the one that's fucking her up, of course. But uh, <laughs> he blames, blames everybody else, you know. But that's amazing. Uh, so you toured with him then? A little bit, yeah, over and back a lot. But I was mostly here. We were recording in Dublin. And he had several little... Hideouts in Dublin. He had a studio that he bought, Windmill actually, and uh, a place in uh, a place in Belfast and a place in Wicklow. And uh, we'd record in all these different places, which very shambolic. He might show up, he might not, kind of thing. Mm. So I was helping him get players for his for his touring band, and he wanted me to do the touring band. But I realised I was working five days a week for him. He only does two gigs a week, 
So hold on, if I go out on the road, I'll make less money. So I stayed in. So I stayed in Dublin for a year, pretty much, just working and putting guys in this band. Mm-hmm. But I did. I went out and did some stuff with them as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's brilliant. And I was talking to you earlier, or a couple of days ago, on the phone, and we were, you were talking about the school you went to, Navin, which. I think Tommy Tiernan went to... Tommy, uh, But you were telling me there was one teacher that really developed, that gave people, or gave you at least the belief that being an artist or... Yeah, I'm the the oldest of that group, right? By by a matter of days. And and, uh, when I went there first, St. Pat's, it was run by the priests, and uh, there were two or three amazing priests, in fairness. Mm. And then there were some that weren't, that pretty much lived up to the modern stereotype. Mm. But, uh, and there were some lay teachers as well, but it all changed when a guy called Richie Ball came in. And I was one of the first guys to experience him, because prior to that, they didn't encourage any lateral thinking or uh, any expressive creativity or music they looked down on. And, mm. uh, you know, I, I, the, the, it was like the cliche. One of the priests, I remember, lifted me up by my... my growing sideburns which were pretty pity, pitiful at the time and mm. saying you know that you'd be better off with a shovel in your hand that kind of thing mm. and then Richie came in who was actually seeing my sister at the time I think I was never got to the bottom of that could you check that out for me Donna I don't know um, <laughs> and uh, uh, she's married she's married now but anyway uh, yeah. not to him and uh, Richie came in and he changed all that he was the first guy with long hair and whatever at the time a hip young teacher had come straight from teacher training college and his whole uh, methodology was to encourage guys. That, so as a result, I was probably the, the first of them, and then Tommy was. Then he taught you. Did we all. Dylan Moran. Dylan, uh, Tommy, Brian Bourne, the composer now is fantastic, and uh, Hector. Hector. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I don't think he did anything for Hector. Probably nobody could do anything for Hector. <laughs> <laughs> and um, but you were telling me about a song you wrote that that uh, is kind of to do with, well to do with the. What, what, what you want to be as a young fella? Uh, it's not quite that. It's more like no. it's something I dug out of the archives. I don't know if I want to play it now. I'll try it. I'll uh, go on. And uh, mm. I haven't finished it. If I can remember the words. It's basically a, a, a thing about... Uh, my father was a huge influence on me when I was mm. uh, growing up as a musician. And I, I had a much closer relationship than, with him than I had with my mother for some reason. Mm. And uh, I've spent a lot of time in therapy trying to figure that out. But I haven't figured it out. But my dad was great, and, and only now that I'm getting to be well into my 30s, I'm going, <laughs> that I see that a lot of things he'd said at the time now ring true for me. He was a, a musician and a teacher. In fact, he for, formed the, uh, the Kentstown Accordion Band, which began to be very famous. Oh, yeah, yeah they, they, they go all over the world. I think they have a plaque to him in the little hall there. But, uh, mm. So he was also a teacher, and he was a sax player in the 50s and 40s. and uh, So he had a great... He was the first one that taught me that all music is either good or bad, essentially. But I remember reading something by, I think it was Oscar, Oscar Wilde, who's always someone safe to drop if you've got a quotation <laughs> uh, in Trivial Pursuit around. It's always a good bet it was him. But he mentioned something about one of our great tragedies is that one of our great, what is it, we try to emulate our fathers. That's our, what is it, do you know the quote, Jared? Um, it's, we, you know, we try to become like our fathers, but we really should become like our mothers. That's what he talks about. Mm. So the, the idea struck me, but I, I wrote this thing about, if I can remember, I'll sing a verse or two, but... Uh... Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. Yeah. I'm not warmed up, so I'm not going to play any tricky guitar, Okay.
tear our souls to shreds We never tell the truth anymore Oh, how going to do any tricky stuff. <laughs> that, that was amazing. I can't believe I remember the words. Uh, no, that's amazing. So do you write a lot of songs now? Or, you said that's from the archive. That's an old song, is it? I know it's been like, lurking around for a long time, but I never... Uh, no, I'm mostly into composition now. I, I've, I've, uh, I lecture in music uh, in DIT, and mm. I'm about to embark on a doctorate. And I've, I've been working with the orchestras a lot. That's a whole different... Again, getting back to the Catholic thing, I, I, I've been a country player, I've been a blues player, a rock player, a jazz player for a while, and now I'm getting more into a bigger overview of things. So I've scored a couple of movies, the first Veronica Kieran one with uh, John Allen, right. and uh, I think called Silent Grace, which was about the dirty protest in Armagh prison by the women's prison, All right. which is, you know, nobody discussed. Mm. And all of that stuff, particularly that movie, kind of pushed me back towards... I'd been very apolitical for a long time, and then I started getting involved with what's going on in this fucked-up republic, and uh, mm. everything is is more about uh, a political representation of music for me now. So uh, I'm writing a concerto at the moment for guitar and orchestra, and I'm working with the symphony orchestra this week. So it's more about... I've done some TV things as well. I've written the theme for the lotto, not that many. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the most that money I'll ever make. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, you could probably write a whole symphony, but you'll get more money from an ad. There you go. <laughs> uh, and, um, like, so uh, how do you mean political? I mean, are you... I'm pretty politically motivated now. I've, I've rejoined Sinn Féin. <laughs> Uh, the sinners and uh, mm. well, I got you know Francis Black, who I work with a lot, who's everyone thinks is a kind of a, a kind of a milk toast folk singer. She's actually very uh, politically aware, and she's mm. recently been elected to the Shannon. And she has a portfolio. She she started a thing about another thing that's close to my heart is the uh, the problem with alcohol and drug addiction in this country. So mm. uh, I think it's an, a, a huge epidemic. Uh, and I've had my own run-ins with it. And how, so, did, how did, like, drinking was a problem for you, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, how did it get to the stage where you stopped, or how did, how did it... Wow, there's many things. Uh, mm. Waking up on the wrong continent was a bit of a... was a bit of a shock one time. How did that happen? <laughs> I was working with Tony Childs, and uh, we were rock stars. We were number one in Australia and Japan, and uh, we were managed by the same office as Guns N' Roses. In fact... Uh, Tracy Guns, that was the Guns of Guns N' Roses. He covered one of my songs on their album, right? Yeah. So I was hanging around with those guys a little bit, and they were doing all kinds of stuff. It was mm. insane. And uh, so I had a girl who was my... It sounds terribly pretentious now, because I live in Malahide and I live a normal life. But at that point, I was living in Hollywood. and it was. So I'd bring someone up and say, uh, when are we starting in England? And she'd go, uh, oh, next week or something. I'd say, book me a flight to Sydney. I'm going to go down there for a couple of days, right? So I did this once, but I don't remember doing it. I was enjoying myself, and uh, mm. I went down to Sydney and had a few great days there. One of them, which uh, I don't mind saying, because if anyone gets any kind of um, 
resonance from this, it'll help a little bit. But I kind of woke up in the middle of telling a story at a policeman's dinner dance. Now, I shouldn't have been anywhere near a policeman because what was in my pockets would have been enough to get me mm. knocked up. So, uh, and I woke up and I'm going, what the fuck? How did I end up here? And I'm telling a story and they're all listening. I was, uh, you know, I know you're a comedian, but I actually tell a couple of good jokes occasionally. Yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, these guys, what had happened was I was in a bar somewhere and these guys thought I was great crack and there were two big coppers and they said, come on, come on with us and we're going to our dinner dance and you can tell some yarns, it's great crack. I don't remember any of this until I woke up. Jesus. And, so you uh, woke up in the middle of a story? Middle of a yarn and I didn't know the start of the yarn so I couldn't fucking finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to turn around and say, well, what was I saying there? He says, the one about the... Oh, right, okay. And, uh, <laughs> so that gave me a terrible... And also you were in the wrong continent. Well, then I went back to the hotel and we had no yeah. mobile, mobile phones and I went back to 14 calls and it's the girl that had booked it. She says, you know, what the fuck are you doing in Sydney? I said, well, we're starting a tour here in a couple of days. No, you're not. You have to go to England and Germany first and you're in London and the Dominion Theatre the next night and somebody yeah. was there and uh, so I had to get in the plane then yeah. and fly for 30... And so I walked onto the fucking London kind of still jet lagged and still drunk and whatever and that was the start of well, maybe I should look at this but it took me a few years after that to kind of that was one minor incident there was lots of other horrific that's things. minor please tell us more <laughs> no, no, no I, I generally don't talk about that I, I generally would help someone if they got a problem Yeah, I would be interested in that but I don't like uh uh, I suppose you're glamorising it. Yeah. Romanticising it. Romanticising it. Yeah. You know, there's too many people to do that. Yeah, and... Uh, I just did it there, so fuck, sorry. You know? Yeah. Nah, well, it was nah, funny. Well, uh, so, uh, so you, like, how did you stop? Is it... Is it um, do you have to reach rock bottom? What is the rock bottom for you? Uh, well, the person is here who actually was the catalyst to me actually stopping. I don't want to embarrass her, but, uh, yeah, I just did a programme, and I got involved, and uh, it worked. Mm. And it worked first time? Well, that wasn't my first time trying it, but yes, it did mm. finally work, and it was uh, fantastic. Mm. And I haven't looked uh, back since. How many years now are you? 24. Ah, brilliant. Yeah. Fair play to you. Good stuff. <laughs> no, that's not an achievement. We're in a pub. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a pub, yeah, yeah. Everyone's feeling guilty now yeah. as they lift their pints. Yeah, put that down, <laughs> you big losers. Yeah. <laughs> no, but fair play to you. I mean, it's just a shame when you see people like what happened to Phil Linton and things like that. Well, know, that was like, they were mm. all things that shocked me because he was, I'd, I'd hang, hung out a lot with him and uh, he was the most indestructible guy I knew. He was the biggest rock star I ever knew. I never anyone could walk into a room and just light the place up. Mm. And, uh, he was a bit of a hero for me. And mm. then when I saw, and then I thought everything he was doing he was indestructible, you know, mm. and he did a lot of stuff, and it's not, it's common knowledge now. So, and I was party to some of the things, and I was like, Jesus Christ, this is too dark. So he asked me to join his band, and I go, if I join, I remember talking to my father about it, and he said, if you join that band the way you are, you'll be dead in six months. And I said, you know, he's fucking right, even mm. though they were my favourite band and whatever. So I didn't join it, but I also had my own first album, and I didn't want to abandon the band and all that stuff. But that was probably a big reason why you didn't join Oh, yeah, it was very dark. Uh, even though they were a magnificent live band, the characters hung around with them, very dark characters. And uh, Yeah, I read the book his mother wrote. Oh, Philomena. Yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's terrible. It's shocking, shocking. I mean, he could have been saved even on the night that he died. Of course, and uh, yeah. I have friends that yeah. were there, and uh, but he was pretty far gone. I know he would have been 65 or something. But they now. called around some shady fella to uh, fix was, him. And was any, well, I know that guy. Do you know well, him, yeah. time after. But mm. he could have been... Philip could have been... He, he was a fantastic talent, and mm. it's, it's just such a great tragedy that he didn't live. To, I, I, I'd love to have seen what he would have done as he as he matured. I mean, he died at thirty six, so it's, it's hard I'm to I'm in my fifties now, and that seems like wow, that's very young. You know what I mean? Very young. Oh, there you go. So I mean, it's amazing yeah. how much he actually did. Though. Well, that's that's another thing which makes mm. me feel like a loser. As well. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a loser. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. So, but it is a problem in our. I, I, I probably agree with you. Drinking is unbelievable in Ireland, isn't it? I mean, it's so acceptable. Well, there's an irony here. We're in a pub. I know we're in a pub, but we're all just having a little drink. But I mean, when when you would see, I remember one time I was at an oxygen festival. Oh, it's it's shocking. And it was that that's like eight, they're around 17, 18 year olds. Just twisted. I just had to get out of there. Well, it's, I find it's, I know, I don't, I work in pubs, I play and do whatever, and it it doesn't bother me anymore. But I do Mm. think there is a, some sort of paradigm shift in the way 
Mm. And it's probably every older generation has said this, but the way kids drink anymore is mm. it's oblivion or bust, and that's not good. The thing, the problem is, well, I find the problem. See, when I was in my 20s, uh, I wouldn't have much money, so I'd go down to the pub at uh, a quarter to 11 and drink three pints really quickly, and that's how I got drunk. <laughs> I, remember, I remember putting an but, argument up the uh, first time I'd been to America and realised, wow, the pub's stay open at four in the morning, this is great. Uh, they should do this in, in Ireland. And yeah. they kind of did extend the drinking hours and... No matter what time it closes at, still, if it's 2 o'clock closing, there's still 12 pints lined up at the very end. Yeah, yeah. yeah Whereas yeah. in America, by the time the closing time, it empties out. There's nobody left in the bar by the time the except one guy asleep at yeah. the counter, you know. Me, probably <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and, and, and I know when I went to Spain and I was sitting in a pub in Barcelona. I saw people leaving their table and with that, glasses yeah, yeah. that were, had drink in them. I was like, what the, what's, what's wrong, wrong with, with these those, people? Yeah. Well, you know, the Spanish drivers, they have the, the little cartel, what do you call it, the little brandy in the coffee. They'll have one of those, Yeah. you know, yeah. At, at 11 in the morning, which is, oh, you're drinking in the morning. Yeah, but that's it. They're done until 5. Yeah. Another yeah. One then. We don't have that culture here. Which, that's why I thought when uh, McDowell, who I'm not a fan of, when he was talking about bringing in that cafe culture, I thought that would have been a great thing. Mm. Uh, this is a lovely bar, by the way, and, and, uh, and it's uh, fantastically... Cosmopolitan. That's good that. coffee too, and good coffee as well. Thank you very much. But the idea that uh, the idea that people just one clap for the coffee. Just one. Oh clap my god! Me. So nobody <laughs> drinking coffee tonight. <laughs> but the idea that people yeah. would have more of a social event that's not just around gargling to e- oblivion, mm. and that they, so you see it in France and, and in Spain and places like that, where you can go out and have a bit of food and drink whatever you want, as much as you want or as little as you want. So. You know, it's just like I, I'd be—I'd be a big advocate of legalizing all drugs, nearly, because once you you start—I uh, don't do any, by the way—but I mean, once you not not illegal ones anyway, and once you uh, make it something difficult to get, people are just—you know—if you—if you wake up and the first thing you and look at Dublin's drug problem at the moment, if you wake up and you're a heroin addict, the first thing you want is to try and get another heroin. That's your—that's your. That's your uh, your motor's operandi when you wake up. You need to get more heroin. Mm. Whereas if they saw, they did it in Portugal and the, they made it available. Mm. And uh, as a result, crime dropped. Uh, yeah. So then you realise the choice is yours to, okay, I've got to cut back on this stuff. Mm. It's not just all about procuring. The next. They've actually brought in a thing in Canada in one of the cities I can't where, where the uh, winos or whatever are, the are, winos, are, yeah. are, are, whatever, the alcoholics that are homeless and stuff, yeah. they're, ge- they're brought into a place and given a glass of wine every hour and it actually brings their drinking down and it brings down crime yeah we need to look yeah. at stuff like that and mm-hmm. in fairness mm-hmm. France is getting mm-hmm. back to her she's gone into the Shannon with a portfolio she had started her own uh, the, the Rise Centre which was for people that are suffering uh, from the, the effects of it more of the family members which nobody looks mm-hmm. after because mm-hmm. every every addict brings down 12 people around them, they, they, they reckon. I don't mm. know where they got that quantitative information, but mm. it is pretty much that. It destroys a family. It does so she tries to deal with them. Mm. So she's, there's at least one person in the Shannon who knows what they're doing. Mm. You know, she has a history herself, so okay. I support her strongly. Yeah. So what you asked about politicisation, I think we're in a country where we need to get a lot more aware about what's going on with that stuff, mm. how our tax money is getting spent, you know, what our government are doing. And how are you... you, you uh what are you doing? What? How are you involved in that kind of thing? Sinn uh, Fein. <laughs> periphery. Uh, yeah. I know it's not a popular choice, Sinn Fein, but I mean they were the only. Oh, this because I'm not going to get contentious, but that was my choice, and mm. uh, I went back to being a Republican anyway because the EU. Mm. I'm not a fan of the EU. No. No. And uh, sorry I don't, to the Germans. Oh, Jesus Christ! Sorry about that. Nothing personal at all. Actually, but I, think we, I think we owe you some money. We probably owe you a lot. Forty-two. Here. Sorry, you hear it? Sorry. There's <laughs> a, a tenor. It's amazing. I was, I was in Germany a couple of years ago with with Gilbert O'Sullivan, and uh, the guy that was bringing us around was a. Uh, uh, he brought the, it, you know everything's collapsed in terms of the record industry and all that stuff. So this guy Christian, fantastic character, and he was the head in our guy for. BMG, or one of the huge labels. He had a private jet, he had all that, and then that all collapsed with the in, collapse of the industry. So he was driving a Volvo with stuff in the back, and he would do whatever was necessary. Mm. He had such a great work ethic. So him and his wife Irene, I've become great friends with them, and I was going, what's the deal with you guys? I mean, you, you've experienced the very top end of this, flying the eagles around on private jets and all that stuff, and now here you are setting up a little CD stand at a, at a county fair that has 5,000 people at it. 
And he says, this is what, this is what we do. We, we cut our cloth to, to, to suit. Mm. What's wrong with you Irish people spending money like drunken sailors, which we were doing at the time, you know what yeah. I mean? And uh, spending not your own money, which we were doing at the time as well. Credit so, cards. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. no, it's not that I wouldn't be... I'm not anti-Euro, but it's, it's at odds with the idea of getting autonomy back for, for our own country. So... Uh, if we could work out, so I don't know, I've got to be careful. I haven't thought about this a lot. I think he'd spring this on me. So uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm ambivalent about the EU, the idea mm. that we have to give up our autonomy and our fiscal autonomy, which he did in 2008. Mm. You know what I mean? So Mrs. Merkel is a lovely woman, I'm sure. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's gorgeous. lovely. Fantastic. Beautiful woman. Right. Uh, Moving on quickly. So, uh, are you going to. Do you want to play that song? There's a song uh, you, I saw you play, an instrumental, a tribute to Padre O'Donnell, it's called. Is that right? We're not really moving on there. He was a famous Republican. Yeah, well, that's, it's linked in then. <laughs> it's a Donald Lunny song, right? It's it? Donald. I play with a band called Moving Hearts, and I never mm. play this tune with them, but it's one of my favourite tunes. Mm. And it has never been written for guitar. And you asked me to play it today, so I'm trying to remember it, but mm. so if I mess it up, please forgive me. But uh, it's normally played by my friend Davy Spillane on a low whistle, and it's fantastic. So I've kind of done an arrangement for guitar, and you said you'd like to hear it. Yeah. I've only played it once on that recording. Oh, really? Yeah. That'd be so great. One, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. I think I'll tribute to Pat O'Donnell, who was a famous uh, Fermanagh Republican at one point. So uh, Donald only wrote this piece of music. It's just a very quiet guitar piece and it's not that flashy or anything right that's what you said before the last one (laughs) forgive me if I mess it up I'm trying to remember
Applaus amazing. Listen, Jimmy, thanks for, thanks for chatting to me. And uh, I just think you're amazing. And it's amazing that you just come from down the road. And you're just brilliant. I think you're <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for chatting to me. Thanks, Joe. And uh, it's just a pleasure to meet you. So. Thank you. Jimmy Smith. Thank you. Jimmy Smith there. Jimmy Smith. What a man. What a gent. What a gentleman. And uh, that was in Boyles and Slane. And uh, I think a, a few days later, I went to see Aslan in Slane. First time I'd ever seen Aslan. Amazing. What a man Christy Dignam is. And I've got his number and I've asked him to do the podcast. And it looks like he will do the podcast. Uh, he's some performer. Uh, Christy is very... Uh, you can't take your eyes off him when he's on stage. Um, well, listen, thanks for listening. And uh, uh, keep on uh, giving me, you know, star ratings and reviews and contact me. And if you want me to interview somebody that you really want here to hear me interview, send me an email at mjoerooney at gmail.com or contact me on my website, www.joeroonycomedian.com. All my dates are up there. And follow me on Twitter at at Joe Rooney one. Uh, thank you to Andrew Mangan for producing, and thank you to Castaway Media for hosting, and thank you to Jack Odies for sponsoring, and to Daniel Rooney for the music. I'll talk to you next week. Next week, I will be talking to Barry Crimmins. An amazing American comedian. You can see him on Netflix on a documentary called Call Me Lucky. We talked over the Skype and it's a fantastic interview. What a story this man has. Hopefully he's coming over to Ireland in October. Listen to it next week. It's amazing. Thank you. Goodbye. This was a Castaway Media production. Find more great podcasts on our network. Visit castaway.media. I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I can call my agent, too? It's called service. Insurance with local agent? It's called service. Call State Farm agent Megan Roberts in Atlantic today. 